And so Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when He, when he comes, He will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking with you. I am. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. So, as I was telling our kiddos earlier this morning, I have worn glasses, not these glasses, but glasses, since I was four years old, lucky me, Um, since I was four years old. That's before they were all cute like they are now. Mine looked like the really chunky ones they issue you in the military, right, that are not meant to be uh, necessarily the most attractive glasses ever. That's what mine looked like. Uh, My eyesight is really bad. My eyes look like little pinpoints inside my glasses because the lenses are so strong. People, when I take my glasses off, they're like, wow, you have normal-sized eyes. That's incredible. Um, You can, like, see the sides of my head inside my lenses. That's how bad my vision is. Um, Something that people with glasses know that maybe those who don't have glasses don't realize is that we don't always know when our glasses are smudgy. We know that you do. We appreciate you pointing that out to us when you do. Um, (laughs) 
but we don't always notice. You know, smudgy glasses is kind of like nose blindness, where you don't realize you, you smell bad, but everyone around you does. Um, uh, smudgy glasses are those things that, like, over time, they get worse and worse, but your eyes just don't really pick up on that until one day you, you pick them up in some spotlights. You go, my God, you know, how was I looking through those? And you, and you wipe them off, and you put them back on, and suddenly the world is in high definition once again, right? Um, I think we have a tendency to look at Scripture and at people and at people's stories through smudgy glasses, um, where we think we, we know what we're looking at. We think we remember well, perhaps. We think we've seen this before, but then when we uh, clean the lenses and look again, we realize maybe we see something new, something different that we didn't notice the first time around. Um, I think we see the woman at the well through smudgy glasses sometimes. Because for a long time, the interpretation of the woman at the well was that uh, this is a woman that Jesus called into repentance. This is, you know, some old preachers would call her uh, a harlot or a woman of the night, or you insert a word here, and, and, and they would say, and look, and, and, and Jesus is, is offering her this new life, this different life, and, and, and like that's not actually in the text if we look closer. And so I want us to clean our lenses off today as we, as we talk about, uh, for the next two weeks, we talk around subjects of mental health. The, the woman at the well, I think, has an incredibly helpful story for us if we're able to see it. But first, we have to clean our glasses off and see the story rightly. Because if we clean our glasses off and we look at this text, we begin to notice a few things. The first thing we might notice, um, and what we should always notice when reading any text of Scripture, is what comes before uh, you know, Scripture is never written in, in a vacuum or in isolation, certainly not, uh, you know, Scripture is within a larger gospel. Uh, this comes to us in John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4. And in chapter 3, John shows us two men. The first is named Nicodemus. He's this old Pharisee, which is like an old religious elite living in Jerusalem, the, the kind of guy who's supposed to have it all figured out. And Nicodemus is visiting Jesus in the middle of the night. He's scared that anyone might find out that he is going to learn from this young upstart rabbi rebel. And he goes and he listens to Jesus, but he's kind of confused and perplexed by what he's saying. And just as quickly as he enters in the middle of the night, he stealthily leaves as well. And we're not really sure what to make of Nicodemus. And then John talks to us about John the Baptist, different John. John the Baptist was that, that figure that sort of proclaimed the coming of Christ. Here he comes. Here comes the Messiah that we've been waiting for. His name is Jesus. And, and in chapter 3, we hear John's final testimony, that voice in the wilderness crying out one last time, here he is. And so we've got this like cliffhanger of this old religious man who we're not sure if he got it or not. And then we get the, the last word from John the Baptist and, and we see Jesus is on the scene and then enters in the woman at the well. Remember that. We'll come back to it. The next thing that we might notice as we clean off our lenses and look at this story is that Jesus does not, in fact, condemn her for any sort of illicit life. Nothing about that is mentioned. It is mentioned that she has had five husbands. We'll come back to that as well. But you know, it's, it's very common for Jesus to encounter people and to call them into right relationship with God, to call them into account, to, to even offer a, a harsh critique at times and to offer forgiveness in response to repentance. None of that takes place with the woman at the well. Why do we read that into her story, I wonder? As we continue to clean off our glasses, 
we notice maybe more about the woman's story. We notice that she's coming at noon that day, and maybe you've heard a sermon on this text before, maybe you haven't, but, you know, it's commonly understood that noon would not be the common time that people would go to a well. I don't know if you're familiar with the Middle East, it gets hot, and so going to a well at noon would not be advantageous. You'd want to go early in the morning or later in the evening when it was cooler. That's when your friends would be there. Uh, getting water out of a well is not exciting work, but it's made a little bit better when you're with friends, with community, and you're able to pass the time together. That's when everyone would have been at the well. But, but Jesus is there at high noon, and the woman is there, and it's like she's surprised to find anybody else present. Again, some people will read into her story and say, aha, see, there, there, there. That's, that's why we know that she was someone on the outs of her community. That must have meant that she was up to no good. Or maybe we can simply take the text for what it says and that, yeah, she was disconnected from her community. She was at the well at noon. She was alone. Maybe she intended to be alone, but we're not entirely sure why. Again, why do we read so much into her text? As we clean off our lenses, we might notice that the setting for this story is Jacob's well. And Jacob's well is a famous place, especially in the Hebrew tradition. It is where Jacob and Rachel met, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. We're not going to get into why he had a favorite wife. Yeah, that implies plurality. Yeah, that's a different sermon. Um, It's where he met his favorite wife, Rachel. Rachel. It was something of the meet-cute spot in his story. And so this is a place where coming together and covenanting and relationships building and growing, that's what this space is known for. Hmm. And then we might notice that this takes place in Samaria. And John is helpful enough to let us know because uh, he was writing to people that may not have been keenly aware of of neighboring relationships back then, Um, but he's clear to tell us Samaritans and Jews do not get along. And for some reason, Jesus is going through Samaria as he journeys throughout Israel. And so there's this little thread that's thrown in there of maybe this is about more than just one person and Jesus. So as we lay all those threads down and we we see more clearly this text, then I want us to also begin to rub our glasses off and see one another more clearly by understanding the woman's story even better. Knowing what we already know, we take a look at this sort of pivotal moment in the text where where Jesus says, go and get your husband. And the woman says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. You've spoken the truth. And again, we read into this story that this woman must be up to no good. How could she have had five husbands in her life? And the, the hard, painful truth is the reason she's had five husbands is because she has experienced heartbreak and trauma. It's not uncommon in those days to be married that often if you're a woman because as a woman, the only way you brought value to your family or to your community was if you got married. So maybe the first husband died and maybe the second husband divorced her and maybe the third husband was that second husband's brother that she got married off to even though she didn't like him that much. Maybe the fourth, you see where this is going? This is a woman who has experienced grief and heartbreak and trauma not once, not twice, not thrice, not four times, not even five times. Now she's experiencing a sixth time. That's what we see in this woman. Maybe she has been burned so many times by her community that she chooses to go at noon because maybe she wants to be alone or maybe because the community talks about her and maybe they read into her story the same way that we do. Maybe they say, you know, there's a reason she's been married so many times. She must be up to no good. 
I think the way that we treat this woman at the well says more about us than about her. We don't take her story seriously. We see her from a distance with smudgy lenses. She exists in a general peripheral sense, but we don't really see her. Like her community does not see her alone at the well at noon. I think we see each other through smudgy lenses as well. And one thing that was clarifying for me this week was seeing a 2023 uh, Surgeon General's report that came out this year. It's about 70 pages long, and it's about a crisis that we're facing as a people. It's a health risk, which is why the Surgeon General chose to write such a lengthy report about it. And this health risk, it, it increases the risk of premature death by 26%, or, or as high as 30%. It increased the risk of, of premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. That's how bad this is. It increases our risk of heart disease by 29%. Increases our risk of stroke by 32%. Increases our risk for anxiety and depression and dementia. Makes us more susceptible to viruses and respiratory illnesses. I'm talking about loneliness and social isolation. Loneliness and social isolation are an epidemic that we are facing as a people. And it's quite literally killing us. Social isolation is something that can be measured. Loneliness is something that is felt. But this U.S. Surgeon General over the last several years has realized that this is something we have to act on as a people. We have to be willing to talk about because whether you want to talk about the factors of social media or the factors of the pandemic or this, that, or the other, the reality is even though we are a more hyper-connected world than ever before in human history, we are also feeling the pains of isolation and loneliness like never before. And it's literally killing us. The Surgeon General is careful to say that positive social connection relies on three factors. The first is structure. That's the size, the variety, and the frequency of your social interactions. Number two is the function, the variety of needs that are met by your social connections. And then importantly, the quality, right? The positive or negative influence and impact this can have. Some of us are gonna have social connections this week that have a very negative impact on our lives. Anybody thinking about Thanksgiving table, right? I love my family. Can't wait to see you. Um, it's going to be great. Um, but I think the point of the U.S. Surgeon General's report, the first thing I noticed is that you don't have to be alone to feel lonely and to feel isolated. You don't have to be alone. You, you could appear to be someone that's hyper-connected, and yet inside you feel extremely isolated and alone. And then again, I see the woman at the well, and I see this. This is a woman who lives in a community, We'll hear the end of her story in a moment. I promise there's good news coming. This is a woman who lives within community and yet through her own actions and through the actions of others is made to feel extremely alone. And that's why it's, it, it, it impacts me to see that the, the gift for her and the gift that we could see if we were willing to clean off our lenses and see her story for what it is, is the good news for her comes in the depth of relationship she develops with Jesus almost immediately. You know, in the Gospel of John, you know, there, there's a few of these extended conversations, but hers is so incredibly rich. And Jesus is talking about this sort of mixed metaphor of living water, meaning water that comes from a, a brook or a stream, but then he's talking about himself as being this living water that, that bubbles up and, and allows us to experience some richness of life that we 
can't quite yet know. And, and, and then as she continues to, to talk with him about the worship that, that her people experience, and, and by the way, the whole five husbands thing, did you know that the people of Samaria had worshiped five, and by that point, six other gods, including the God of Israel? And so maybe when Jesus is saying, you've had five husbands, and the sixth one still isn't your husband, like, oh, maybe Scripture's trying to say something a little bit more than the surface level. But no, no, she must be up to no good, right? Um, there's this incredibly rich story about Jesus bringing the Samaritan people into the fold, him somehow not finding the kind of receptivity he wanted from Nicodemus, and now he's finding it in a woman at a well in Samaria, at Jacob's well, the place where people come together and join together in a new way. Huh. And then by the end, she's, she is able to hear him reveal to her that he's not simply a rabbi or simply a prophet, but he uses the ancient Hebrew words of I am, the words that God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, the words that anyone in Israel or Samaria would immediately know, okay, this, this must be the real deal. We get all of that because she chooses to lean in to the relationship and the conversation with Jesus. Now, some of us feel incredibly lonely, but if we're being honest, we're going to the well at noon and wondering why we feel alone. And I don't say this to cast a stone or, or to sound condemning. Jesus doesn't condemn the woman and neither do I. In fact, I say this because I've gone to the well at noon plenty of times in my own life and I write it off as being an introvert, but it's actually super unhealthy at times because I'm cutting myself off and isolating myself and then I say, well, why am I so alone? Well, Scott, you're going to the well at noon. I know what that feels like, and the responsibility for addressing social isolation and loneliness, it runs two ways. First, as a church, we have to ask the hard questions of ourselves. How are we creating spaces for people to be received, to be seen, to be loved for who they are? Who they are. And the good news is, my friends, I think that you do this very well, remarkably well, as the people called AUMC. I think we have all sorts of ways that folks can connect in this space, even though we're imperfect. I see it in the hospitality of existing groups. I was with the Quest Sunday School class this morning. We talked about Jonah. Quest is a Sunday School class that's been around since 1980. Did I get that right? 1980? I got it right. Pam's a founding member. And I don't know if you know this, but Sunday School classes, after a few years, are supposed to become super super inward focused, and super dismissive of new people. Did you know this? People in my line of work, we know this. In fact, we're trained in this. You're supposed to sort of always be planning new things because, oh, that, that old Sunday school class, they, they can't possibly have new people. There was a new person in the class this morning. They sat right in the middle of the whole group. Someone said, that's your chair right there. Come on in. Let's get to know each other. This is a class that after 43 years is still regularly receiving new people into its mix. And I know it's not the only one. In fact, I don't know of a single class that we have here that feels closed off in the way that we're supposed to. You're really bad at being normal church people. I see this church creating new groups. I heard about there's a group of working moms that have begun to get together and to share life in that way that they can uniquely see and walk with one another because of that shared lived experience. I see it in the care ministry that ensures that people feel noticed and, and actually visited, like physically seen when you are recovering from surgery and you are stuck at home and you're someone like me who getting up and getting out is so important for mental health and you can't do that. It's so critical that the church is then able to extend its doors into your living room 
And I'm grateful for the ways that I see us showing up for folks in the community of faith through meal trains, through home visits, through those simple ways of saying we see you, we notice you, we notice you when you're here, we notice you when you're not here. But then, frankly, as individuals, my friends, here's the hard thing, the hard truth that I have to constantly wrestle with. As individuals, we have to be willing to risk connection. Sometimes, quite frankly, it's much easier to go to the well at noon but we have to be willing to risk connection. It's responding to the invite even though the social anxiety is kicking in. It's getting up and getting out as my therapist likes to tell me. It's trusting that the living water that Jesus is offering is found so often in those living relationships and then seeking those out. And so the last way we need to clean our lenses off is cleaning our lenses off in the way that we see ourselves. Because the story that, 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 that John tells us about this woman at the well, it's not over yet. Isolation can lead us to tell stories about ourselves that simply are not true, like the story we may have told ourselves about this woman at the well. So, let's finish her story this morning, shall we? Let's see what John has to say. Just then the disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? So they don't get it, but they know enough not to ask, right? <laughs> the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? She asks a question. And so they left the city, and they were on their way to meet with him. And then John tells us, meanwhile, Jesus is teaching the disciples what it means to disciple, what it means to invite others into this movement. And just in case his teaching is not enough, they're about to witness it with their own eyes. And it picks up in 39 and says, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more people believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. Remember Nicodemus and John the Baptist, the, the, the old Pharisee that didn't quite get it and walked away on a cliffhanger, the, 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 the prophet who testifies to the coming of Christ. Who's going to carry that message? Who will now invite people to not be ready for the coming Christ, but to meet the one who is here? It's the woman at the well. Just as John tells us the first evangelists on Easter were the women at the empty tomb, John tells us the first evangelist, the first discipler, in the Jesus movement is not any of the disciples, it's the woman at the well. That's her story. She's not someone worthy of shame or our finger wagging, but rather the first evangelist who draws her community into relationship with the Christ. And so when we see her clearly, and her community does too, we realize that she's so much more than these wise old preachers of the last several generations would have wanted us to think. I wonder what meaningful human connection could mean for your own story. Not only the parts that are yet to be written, but the parts that already have been written and how we can understand our own stories in a clearer and more gracious way. 
And so, not to just keep this in the clouds, but one thing I appreciated about the Surgeon General's report is it gave some very clear and practical ideas for how to increase in positive social connection as a response to this epidemic. I don't know where this week is taking you. I don't know what Thanksgiving looks like in your household or with your family, but here's three ways that I think we can increase positive social connection for ourselves and for others. Number one is we have to be willing to reach out when you need help or you need connection. That's frequently the hardest step of all, right? For me, when I was in college, it was calling my mom because she made me feel safe and saying, I think I need to talk to a doctor. Nowadays, it's reaching out to my friend's text thread who, quite frankly, I'm really bad about texting in. And when I show up, they're like, hey, Scott's alive. Good to see you, Scott. Um, and reaching out and saying, guys, I am, I am dying here. I could use some help. Number two is to respond with support, with gratitude, and with focus. As I said, I am so guilty of the unread text threads or the unresponded to messages. And the hard truth I have to face is if I want people to show up for me when I need them, then I have to be willing to show up for others and to get through that slog of red dots on my phone, even though it terrifies me. And to respond with support for them, perhaps gratitude for that relationship. Or maybe this week what that response looks like is when you are with friends or family, your phone is put away and your focus is simply on that moment. Because even a conversation at a well can change a lifetime. And number three is to reflect the values of connection, your values of connection. If you're looking for more kindness in your life, then my friend, you have to show up in the world with kindness. If you're looking for, uh, for relationships with respect, then show up with respect. If you're looking for compassion, if you're looking for commitment, if you're looking for grace, then embody that as you encounter others and see what you receive in response. I'm not telling you it's all going to work out. I'm not telling you it's going to be perfect. That's why it's a risk. The woman could have seen Jesus coming and walked away. She could have denied his request for water. She could have been like Nicodemus and said, oh, I don't know, this is above my head, and left. But she stayed and she stayed, and she stayed. And then when she left, she changed everything, not just for herself, but for her community. What a saint. So this week, let's clean off the lenses as we see one another, as we see ourselves, as we see God's love in our lives. May it ever be so. Amen. <laughs>